Before we start this week's episode, I have something really cool I want to share with all of you. So Cassie and Friends, as you know, as I've mentioned a bunch of times on the podcast, they're the charity organization that I volunteer with and who have honestly supported me through a lot. So they actually have an event coming up and an interactive webinar. So I'm just going to let you all know about it because you got to attend, you got to be there. You want to know the details, Natasha will give you all the details. And the webinar is called Talking the Reins, Transitioning from Pediatric to Adult Rheumatology Care. This event is happening on Thursday, October 28th, 7 p.m. EST, 4 p.m. PST. And you can kind of expect to learn about a national-wide transition process from clinics across Canada. You will literally be able to connect with so many people and ask questions in a safe space. Be sure to attend this webinar. The link for registration will be attached in the description down below, you'll be able to see it. All right, let's get to the episode. The information that we share today is from our own personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions as it may pertain to your condition. Hey everyone, welcome back to Take a Paycheck. I'm thrilled to introduce this week's guest, Effie Coliopoulos. Effie is a rheumatoid arthritis advocate, a freelance writer, and a children's book author, which we're all going to talk about uh, very soon. And she creates content over her YouTube channel called RA and Myself, and has collaborated with Everyday Health, Pfizer, okay, this is a lot, um, We Go Health, Good Housekeeping, and Creaky Joints to raise arthritis awareness, which is super important. In addition, she's the face behind the Going Instagram page, rising above RA. So, hey, Evie, I'm so excited to have you on today. Can you kind of start off by introducing yourself and your diagnosis? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Effie Coleopolis. Um, I'm from Chicago, and I was diagnosed with polioticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis. I know that's a mouthful, but it's a, a subtype of juvenile arthritis, and It also is known to mimic adult RA, also known as rheumatoid arthritis, and lead into adulthood. So I was diagnosed at 18 years old. So 18 is considered technically to be an adult Mm -hmm. nowadays. So people just refer to my condition as RA. Other doctors refer to it as JIA, but that's kind of where I'm at with like the way I label what I'm diagnosed with. So yeah. Wow. Okay. So we have the same condition per se, because I have the same polyarticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that's great. I mean, it's not great to have the condition, but it's definitely (laughs) great to see someone else who has the same condition as you. So you're diagnosed at 18 and that's kind of like the stage where you're supposed to transition or you might be in pediatric care, but are going to transition. Like where were you kind of sitting in terms of 18 years old and seeing which type of doctor? How did that kind of work? Yeah, I was still seeing my pediatrician because I was a senior in high school when I was diagnosed. So I had not graduated yet from high school. Um, I was diagnosed January of that year. So I technically didn't start treatment until after that. Um, And so like my rheumatoid arthritis journey really started after I graduated high school. And so a lot of that kind of took place when I was in college and into my 20s. And how did that kind of feel like did you need any accommodations in the last bit of high school and then transitioning to accommodations and like 
college. Yeah, you know, I didn't get any accommodations in high school because I still didn't really know what was going on. And mm-hmm. I didn't start treatment until that May or June. And I actually had waited to get a second opinion while I was a senior in high school. So I had symptoms that started sophomore year. And then, so it was like two years of not really knowing what was going on. So I developed like really like subtle things, you know, uh, it was like acne first and foremost, bloating and fatigue and just like all these things that teenagers experience at times. And, you know, I brought it up to my pediatrician at the time at my yearly physical and she didn't really say much about it until I pointed out changes in my hands that I had noticed. And it wasn't really something others could pick up on, but something I could. And then she sent me to a rheumatologist. So, um, you know, when I went to college, it was pretty um, seamless in regards to the help I got because there was a student center for people who had disabilities and needed accessibility stuff. So, you know, I just went for it and went there and asked for help and they were really nice. So I got like a tape recorder thing and they offered if I needed ever a note taker to come to them and ask for that. So I wasn't shy about asking for help or telling my teachers about it. So I would email them ahead of time before I started my courses and I would try to make my schedule like really easy too. like, you know, I was a commuter student, so I didn't want to go every day and I didn't live on campus at all ever. So I just tried to like go there like three times a week two times a week, which I wouldn't recommend because it was like an all day thing. But, you know, I just tried to make life easier for myself. And that's really good. I feel like you need to take all the help you can get just to make life easier. I know sometimes like a lot of teenagers are kind of afraid to ask for help or even tell teachers because sometimes there are teachers that invalidate your experiences, peers around you, like making comments. Did you experience any of that um, in terms of like bullying or anything? No. Wow. No, not in college. No, not, not at all. Really. I mean, I kept my condition relatively private. I mean, only like family and friends knew. So, I mean, it wasn't really anything like that, that I experienced. Actually, teachers are really understanding. I had a few professors who had health issues of their own. So they, you know, if I came to, class like five minutes late like they wouldn't say anything you know so yeah. I mean I, I had support pretty much all around I think it just um you know socially it was the harder part because I had to really like rehaul my whole life like in terms of lifestyle and diet changes so when you're 18 and, and in college that's like a time when everyone's going out wanting to go out to eat or drink or party while they're studying so I couldn't really I do all that to the extent that others were. And sometimes I would kind of falter and like get off my diet plan and that affected me. So, you know, it was just like socially, I think a lot of people didn't understand what I had to do fully and what the extent of the condition was. Yeah. And honestly, like now that you mentioned that I am 18 right now. Yeah. And I get what you're saying though, because it is socially awkward, like, but I'm in university and it's going to be awkward because like, I'm also on like a healthy lifestyle change, right? Kind of like explaining to people that you can't eat out every day. You can't do certain things every day. It's, it's, it's socially like complicated. I'd say like my high school friends totally understand because I've been with them for four years. And so they're, they're like, they're like used to it. So we find like alternative things to do, but I know some people like completely don't understand. And that's really it makes you feel like you're in an awkward place. And obviously, like, 
you shouldn't really be friends with people who don't understand. Um, but even starting to like make friends at that age, um, like, cause you're moving on to like a new life per se. Mm-hmm. I totally understand how that would be like harder. Yeah. So, like, it's so much like smoother. I'd say like in high school, it was a totally different experience where like teachers are like, Oh, I can't see your pain. It does, it's not real. And all that. I think it will be good for you. I mean, I was in college like over 10 years ago now. So I mean, they had (laughs) stuff like that. So I mean, now they have so much more resources for people that, you know, people my age didn't have back then either. So I know in the high school setting now, they're even more accommodating than they were back then. So yeah, Yeah. I don't think you should have anything to worry about. But I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you have been on medication because um, I'm pretty sure everyone's yeah. with the consult of your rheumatologist. How is your medication journey and like how did it kind of start at 18? I know you were kind of in the process where you thought, okay, like I have growing pains, I have acne, like I have things that normal teenagers have. Um, when did it kind of start? I need to go on medications and what the medications are. Well, when I got my second diagnosis and it was obvious and apparent that like I had swelling in my joints and it was kind of confirmed then that yes, this is what it is because rheumatoid arthritis can mimic a lot of other conditions and uh, diseases. So, you know, I needed to make sure that this was what it was. So I've been tested for Lyme disease four times, I which all were negative, and just a bunch of other things just to rule out for sure that it was specifically what they said the first time it was, which was, you know, the JIA. But yeah, that's when I started medication. They started me on Embril right away, which is a biologic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I connected with a lot of people my age who were not started on that right away, but more like the triple therapy, which is methotrexate, prednisone and Plaquenil, which was never even offered to me in the first place, which I think was um, in a bit like the wrong route to take. So like, for me, I was diagnosed when the biologics came on the scene. So it was like the new it thing. And it just was too strong for me. It didn't work well. I had a lot of underlying root factors Mm -hmm. at play, like viral infections and bacterial stuff in my gut. So like that didn't help things when your immune system is suppressed. So for me, that was a huge trigger in the JIA, you know, so um, I didn't find that out until a few years later, though, after I was on Embril for like, maybe five, six years, and things got worse, and I started flaring. And then a rheumatologist is like, Oh, maybe you have a viral infection, he never tested me for it. So that was like another thing that wasn't done, right. So it's like, you know, there's just a lot of things you learn along the way about like, what's really bothering you internally, because there's a reason why you get sick in the first place, you know, you know, medicine is there to treat it, but like, what's really causing it. So that's kind of like what people are like trying to balance all the time that you see on social media, you know, with like, alternative and the mindfulness and the lifestyle along with like medication because sometimes you need it and I'm like one of those people who did need it because I had a moderate to severe form you know that was aggressive so yeah I like for me specifically I also well my mom put me into some of those like alternative treatments Mm -hmm. per se but also like the lifestyle change and being healthy in general um is definitely a big change but I think a lot of us patients do know that it does make such a huge change, obviously being like alongside medications. Sometimes you don't know, you don't know if it's the medication that's working, your lifestyle change is working, but you kind of just go with the flow and you're like, okay, something's working. So it should yeah. be. Okay. <laughs> what are your thoughts on sort of that? Like, how do you feel when you're like on this like lifestyle change, but you're also on medication? Um, 
what do you think in your mind that works or doesn't work is your are your joints feeling better and like I know I didn't ask you this but what joints are really affected <laughs> yeah my hands um are really affected because that's like the first thing that where you know the JIA was uh, impacting like way before I was even diagnosed so like I had told you I started experiencing symptoms like two to three years prior but I think it was even sooner than that and they there's a study out there that says like uh, this type of disease manifests years before sometimes people even get symptoms. So I think for me, it was even like maybe even middle school, um, but it was very, very subtle. Like no one would even know. And I wouldn't even know, you know? So I think for me, like environmental factors played it uh, plays a big role and food. So like, you know, I've done all those food sensitivity and tolerance tests. And I know some people say they're not worth it and there are scams, but you know, I have like 10 years of tests to prove that they're really not. And it, it depends which ones you take too. Like there's at home ones that I wouldn't really recommend. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I can just tell from like the people that I've talked to who are medical professionals. And I've talked to several, you know, like which ones are legit. And it, it also like you have to follow kind of like well, how you feel. And so I wasn't really that type of person who took like meticulous notes like in the beginning, but then it caused me a lot of stress and worry and like the food fear. But then over time, I just took a mental note of like, how I feel with certain things. And then over time, I didn't feel that anymore. So like the way I felt, and then the, what the results showed kind of coincided together to show like, yes, this is for real, you know? And yeah, I mean, I don't know if I answered the question, but you know, yeah, medication works for me too. It's just that um, sometimes, like you said, it can be hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. And I think that's also why like, people need to realize that it's a one big puzzle piece, you know, there's like all these little things that can help you. And some will help more than others. And obviously, with my blood test that I do with my rheumatologist, they show like, the medicine is working. But if you have damage in your joints and inflammation there, then, you know, obviously, that's going to stay, you know, because damage is not reversible unless you have surgery. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I'll talk about that. So, um, you had a total knee replacement at the age of 29. Yeah. What kind of led this to a major surgery? Yeah, I had a major flare in 2012. And so like, I was like bedridden for a week. And then that kind of took me six months to recover from. And so I was on Humira at the time. And then I again, like when I going back to like the root causes, at that time, I didn't know that I had like really high Epstein-Barr virus markers and all these like, you know, I mean, I was doing like gut analysis tests and GIFX tests and food tests, but I wasn't diving deep enough with the doctors I was seeing at the time. Yeah. And so everyone's like, well, what's this person saying? What's this person saying? But no one was like actually helping me to like go deeper. And with RA, you need to go as deep as you can possibly because Otherwise, you're not going to find like the solutions for you. And I know it can be exhausting. But at the end of the day, it's like it's your life and your health and you owe it to yourself to do the research and to get the tests done that may be available to you. So I mean, yeah, it's just it was it was a wild ride. I don't know. Yeah. And so after that, my knee kind of started getting impacted. But going back to like my sophomore year of high school, my knee blew up like to the size of a melon when I was on a camping trip. Wow. And so then it disappeared after about like a week. And so I was pretty active kid. I wasn't like an athlete or anything, but 
you know, I played sports like park district stuff and I would always go out and do things, but you know, I thought maybe I had injured myself, whatever. And I wore a knee brace that I had laying around from like a family member who had sprained their ligament. And then it went away. Yeah. And then I had like a weird swelling in my wrist that went away too. I thought I had injured it. It was like a bruise that appeared. So like, again, like all these weird symptoms and then, yeah. So technically I may have had that flare in 2012, but back in 2003, my knee swelled too, you know? So it was like something that was occurring for probably a long time. Yeah. So what were the effects kind of like right after the surgery? How did you feel and how long was your recovery time? Yeah, I, I had, I was blessed to have a really amazing surgeon who had the experience to deal with young patients and people who had difficult cases. So yeah, obviously the hospital stay afterwards wasn't fun. I mean, I've never broken a bone or sprained anything. So I really went zero to 100 when it came to like getting like a surgery like that. And so, yeah, it was a traumatic experience, of course. And, you know, yeah, I mean, with that, you go home and you have like home care and then you go out to outpatient therapy. So from surgery time to when I went to outpatient therapy, it was like a total of six months total recovery where I started to feel like better and like kind of release the need of my cane and stuff like that. But it took, I mean, maybe a year or two to even go around a bike back and forth. And I mean, I'm still healing five years later. I mean, you're always going to heal. You're always going to need to do some stuff for your knee. I mean, even last year before the pandemic, I was about to go back to physical therapy because you can do so every time you feel like you may need a little tune up or you feel things are getting better, but you need a professional's help to get you like to get more motion in your knee. But then the pandemic happened and I wasn't able to do that. So that plan was stalled. So I'm just trying to do things on my own. But yeah, I mean, I think like after surgery, it's like never really over. Like you're always needing to be proactive. Yeah. Do you think like your quality of life right now with this like knee replacement surgery is way better than like before? How do you, how do you like feel now completely? Because like your knees are replaced, like um, how does that feel like? Cause I've never had any of my joints kind of replaced or any surgeries for it. But I'd love to know like how it feels right now. It feels like it's part of my body now. Like, okay. obviously, yeah. Like, you know, in the beginning it can feel like it's not really part of you. Like when I saw a physical therapist, she's like, yeah, you're like dragging your leg when you walk, like your body hasn't caught up to your mind or whatever, like all that connection that like you need to like kind of move with it. So yeah. that really helped when I saw someone who can help um, like me, like move my hip and my ankle and everything together. Cause it's not only just one part that's affected. It was like my whole body was impacted from like limping for like three years and like, not like, you know, like your body, there's like a center, right? So like the knee is like a big focal point. So like, I was lucky that my ankle and my hip and my back didn't get impacted. You know what I'm saying? And if I waited any longer, I could have had like a damage in those areas too. I know my left foot was kind of strained from like all the pressure and like my left side. So yeah, I mean, it feels amazing now that I can go and do things and I don't have pain. I couldn't even walk two steps before surgery. So I mean, it is a blessing to have these things available for us. Yeah. And so you mentioned damage a lot. And do you have a lot of joints that are damaged currently or have been, or is it just like, you know, the potential risk of having damaged joints later on? 
what how does damage kind of affect you maybe like indirectly directly yeah my hands have a lot of joint damage and my wrists so again like that was the first place that was impacted like years ago so a lot of people listening may think like oh did this happen like overnight not really it happened over the course of like 17 years so you know like ra is known to be a progressive disease in many respects and if you have a moderate to severe form that likelihood of joint damage can occur but that doesn't mean if you have a mild case that won't ever change either you know there's always ebbs and flows of how the disease process works so it's just about finding the right medication if you are in that situation where you have like a severe case and yeah my elbow too you know eventually i will need surgery there as well on my right side like my right side is greatly impacted more like just my elbow my hand and my knee but you know god forbid nothing else yeah exactly Uh, and that's like so is your dominant hand your right hand it is yeah okay so my dominant hand's my left hand and like my left foot uh, my left hand like I feel like it has to like yes my like right foot's also affected but I feel like it has to do something with like the overuse of like um using like one side because like like you mentioned it was right for you mine is left and I'm left-handed so I do everything with my left hand unfortunately it's very difficult um to do it now which so I kind of see some sort of pattern it's really weird I feel like over the years you kind of like see some patterns with other people you talk to and you're like yeah I have that too but in like a different way uh in terms of like damage and stuff like my joints are also damaged but I feel like that's because I never found the right like to this day now I found the right medication for me in the past year, but before that, like it was four years with trial and error on different medications. So I think that kind of for caused sure. that. But also, you never know like what medications work on you um, because it's it's a complicated process. But yeah, <laughs> okay. So in your article on creaky joints, titled okay, I'm gonna say the title so everyone knows. A note to those who think receiving disability benefits means. I have it easy. You kind of talked about how long it takes to get those disability benefits. And oftentimes that most people don't believe you. When were you told that you weren't kind of disabled enough to receive any of these benefits? And um, if so, how did this affect the way you felt about your arthritis? Yeah, the government. (laughs) So Uh uh, yeah, they are the ones that denied me of the uh, disability benefits. So when I had applied, I was in my 20s, I was still under my parents insurance at the time, mm-hmm. and under 26. And then so uh, even though I had like proof from doctors and medical exams and x rays and stuff like that, they still didn't feel that that was enough proof to label me as someone who needs disability benefits. So you know, at that time, I was still working full time. I mean, it was difficult to go to a nine to five because, you know, as you know, living with RA, like you get fatigue in the morning or you have pain. And back then I had more pain and fatigue then than I do now, ironically, even though I have more damage now. So I'm actually doing a lot better now than I was then, if that makes any sense. But yeah. So, I mean, in order to get to work, I had to take like a hot shower every day to take ibuprofen, which I don't do anymore, either of those things, because I'm doing a lot better now, you know, so that which brings me back to the point, if I was on the right medication, I probably would have fared better. But yeah, I mean, then I applied again, 
And then it just was like they, a year until they got, I guess I was approved and it took a year for them to tell me I was approved. So for 12 months, I didn't know I was approved. And then I just ended up getting like money in my account. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I didn't know if it was like a scam or something. And because they had backdated it for 12 months and then they sent me a letter like two weeks later. So that's just how they work. You know, they take their sweet yeah. time and in informing people, but it's like, okay. But yeah, during that process, I had to keep going to the um, social security office. Like I felt like I was like going to live there. It was really bad. You know, uh, when I got benefits, I actually was cut from benefits for two years because they said that I made over the limit that I was supposed to working, but that actually wasn't true. So like they find a lot of loopholes to not help people and to cut people because they can. And the reason why they don't accept a lot of people is because they don't want to help people, to be honest, like they don't want to pay all this stuff, especially it depends on the state you live in too, you know? So like when I had hired a disability lawyer who had dealt with a lot of people being cut from benefits, he found that like, they were false on many like, you know, claims that they were making. So like, when you look at the numbers, I didn't really make over at all. Like you're supposed to make over like a certain amount every month. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that. So, you know, there's just like so many things that people don't know and they suffer through that they don't have to, you know, really. Yeah. It's hard because you wish people were understanding. And then on top of the article you wrote, you also created a film series titled, shining a light on invisible disabilities and illnesses. So what kind of prompted you to start this? Yeah, so it it was just like a little small passion project of mine. And I had an idea that I was like, why not do it? But that was kind of tying into the disability talk we just had. So, you know, during the time I had applied for disability uh, benefits, or my parents did, I had a disabled parking placard or an accessible parking placard. And that was obviously given to me by my doctor. Like you have to apply for that. You have to have a doctor fill out a form. You can't just get it randomly. So that was also proof that, you know, I needed the assistance, but yeah, it was just based on a story. Like when I was commuting to college, I was taking the train downtown and it was like one of those like early mornings and it was like winter. And so I had found a parking spot right in front of the train. And then like I had arrived there like last minute, literally it was like pulling up. And so I just hopped up these three little steps and then like went into the train. I was like exhausted and in pain. And then someone thought like an onlooker, I don't know who it was ever. Um, They just, they never disclosed who it was obviously, but they had called the cops saying like, oh, I think someone was misusing this. And they put my plates in and then a cop had shown up to my house later that evening. And I was like, uh okay, yeah, this is what what's going on. And he just like left. He's like, oh, okay, sorry. I <laughs> like, you know, that was just the end of that. But that was like the first time I ever like really experienced something like that. And then as I got into like advocacy again, because I had worked with the Arthritis Foundation in college, and I kind of went and did my own thing for a bit. Yeah, I kind of got into it after like my knee replacement and everything a little bit more. So that's when I kind of saw like this whole community online and social media stuff. And people kind of going through the same experience, but I don't like to use the word like they went through it worse, but they kind of did like with like the bullying and the harassment and like people leaving notes on their cars or like even like verbally like assaulting them like in person, which I didn't experience, but it was kind of like, wow, like people are like even like 12 years later, 
going through that. So that's why I wanted to make that and kind of like show like, you know, we don't really know what people are going through. And if we did, like, how would we react differently? Yeah. And especially the police situation. Wow. That's like kind of intense. Like, I don't know what I would do. The police showed up at my door and they're trying to like say, like, I mean, you're police law, but I'm just saying if police yeah. was like, like, yeah. you no, know, like, I don't see anything wrong with you. That's very interesting. Like, I've never heard of that. Um, no, you know? I actually told him him like I have this condition and that this he wanted to come to the house to like check like if this is what yeah like who reported like that's their job if someone reports something they have to go you know do it and so yeah he didn't have any problem I mean he didn't like ask me for proof I just said yeah it's fine I mean what is he gonna say you know so no (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) I mean that's interesting though that someone like reported it oh I understand though sometimes like people do misuse it but like I've right. seen, I've heard of people like misusing it. Like if they're like grandparents have it, then they take it in their car. For sure. So that that totally makes sense. Like it is valid to do that. But it's just it's kind of interesting when it happens to you, and you're like, "Why is this happening to me?" Yeah, uh-huh. and that's what I kind of tried showing too. Like the other side, like people may want to like try to help someone who may need it, you know, um, and then they don't realize that maybe that person that they're accusing that doesn't need it needs it so yeah and so how did you think how do you think like any of these like the film tiny little passion project that you did has helped those watching um to understand like invisible disabilities better like how did that have you seen anyone write comments to you or like let you know they have like a lot of people shared their own stories with me and you know, I don't know the, how much of the impact it made, you know, if it can help one person, then, then you made an impact really, you know, so yeah. it doesn't have to have like millions of views, but you know, uh, yeah, a lot of people did reach out and talk about their, their side as well. Yeah. And you're going to have like a little, another passion project, like you mentioned um, via email. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Or is that something people need to stay tuned for? I like feature people's stories on the keeping it real with arthritis Instagram account and I post them on my blog. So yeah, I'm just going to do one for like the fall, but it was, I didn't post anything for spring or summer just because life was crazy as we all know, like, you know, getting vaccines or whatnot. So yeah, I'm just collecting people's stories now so people can keep, you know, watch for that when it's posted next month sometime. Wow, you have a lot of little projects that you come up with, very creative, and they're really <laughs> nice to be involved in. Uh, and you're really open on your uh, about your arthritis, like on your Instagram page. How did you kind of gain the confidence to be so honest about everything? Um, I think like people perceive it as being open, but I'm still pretty private in regards to like, <laughs> where I go. Like, you know, like I share like the tip of the iceberg and, and things mostly of like what I've like experience a long time ago you know what I mean so like uh, sometimes when you're healed from something or like you kind of like have gotten over something I feel like it's okay to like you get more confident in sharing that you know if it's something new and raw then like hey you need to process it on your own a little bit first and then you'll share it so that's kind of like where I'm at with like what I share you know obviously like social media is just like you know for fun you know and Mm -hmm. education too but it's not like I get paid doing it but yeah, I mean, it's just like, I don't know, I, I guess it's just I don't really care what people think in regards to what I share. I think a lot of people are scared of what, like, how they'll be perceived or what people will say if they come and, you know, 
be open about like what they're going through, but there's nothing to be like embarrassed about or shy about in regards to like your story, because it can help someone else. And it's also therapeutic for you to talk about it too. You know? Yeah. It also takes like a really long time to get to that point and to be like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm doing right. something. Cause I know that that happened to me with this whole podcast. Like mm-hmm. it was hard definitely to be like, okay, I'm ready. Like it, it as a teenager, I definitely totally understand if anyone feels embarrassed or scared to share what they what they're going through. But when you get to that point, you realize like how much more you can do and how you can impact others. Like you mentioned, even if you impact one person, like you've made an impact. And I think that's so powerful that like just one person, if you kind of share your inspiring story and then they get kind of get inspired or learn something in terms of education, like at that point, it's like you've created an impact. And I'm so glad that you kind of don't care what anyone else thinks. Like I still do a little bit, but I think that's just like a normal like teenage yeah. thing to feel um that way. But I think I've like grown to the point where it's like a little bit better. Like I don't care if like someone thinks of me differently, um, then they don't like have a right to kind of talk to me or like be my friend is what I believe. But it is hard to put yourself on social media um, because you still have that in the back of your mind. Oh, what is that person going to think of me? But I think it takes time and it has taken some time. Right. And like, I think it's like, I mean, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I post things. I'm like, eh, I don't know if I should have posted that or is it stupid or, you know, whatever, you know, and then I'm like, eh, forget it. Like, stop like thinking like negative like that, you know, and I have to give you props too. Like when I was 18, I would never have done this stuff. Like I told you, it took me like a decade to like get to the point of like, you know, making a blog and stuff like that. So you're yeah. doing awesome. Thank yeah. you. Um, and so are you. You So you have two Instagram accounts, am I right? Like rising above RA. Right. It. And then the keeping it real with her rise where I just post people's stories. Yeah. Okay, here so it's like two different things. So everyone can kind of check that out. I'll put it in the description anyways. Um, but yeah, so kind of getting on to like the advice piece, because I think it's super important to kind of hear from you on what your take is on some of the experiences that you've had and the advice that you would give because of those experiences what is one piece of advice you would give to someone who is considering replacing a joint in their body? Do it sooner than later. I would say, especially if you're in pain and it's like unbearable because when you're in so much pain, it's also not healthy for your body, mind and spirit to go through that. If that makes sense. So, you know, like when I had was, when I was planning my surgery, like I was going on a lot of Facebook groups, that were dedicated to knee replacements and like talking to others who had been through it. And that was helpful. I would say like, do that, but also know that like your experience is going to be different than someone else's, you know, and and try not to compare yourself either because when you're healing, like your body's going to heal in the timeframe that it wants, no matter how much like you want to achieve a goal. And so, yeah, I think, and also like you can read so many books, you can like, get prepared so much and talk to so many people, but you won't be prepared until it's done, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. you only really know the extent of what you're going to go through until it's over. Like, I kind of like to use the analogy. I'm like, I'm not a parent yet, but I can just like use this analogy because it it kind of flows with it. What I'm trying to say. So like when you're becoming a new parent, like all these people like want to get like the new parenting books and like try to like learn as much as you can. But then you're not going to know what it really means to be a parent until you become one. Does that make sense? So it's like two different things between preparing yourself and actually when it happens. Yeah. And honestly, like you were 
really strong when you went through that scenario because I know like anyone going through that obviously they have a lot of fears um and like just to like get to that point where you're like okay I'm doing this um you have to be in that position and like state of mind like you mentioned that like you have to do it sooner than later I think it's important to like also prepare yourself mentally and if you need to take some time to do that then you know that's your prerogative but you know again like you can create more damage in your body, especially if it's like a knee too. And you're like, you know what I mean? Like for me, like it was bone on bone. So it was a harder surgery because of that. When you have some cartilage, it actually helps the surgeon and helps you like bend your knee better afterwards. Not to say that people who have cartilage don't have bending problems, but you know, again, it's just like, there's a lot of things that can work against you too. What advice would you give to youth this chronic condition is being invalidated. I think like when I was first trying to tell my pediatrician that I had symptoms, I think back then that's when I should have listened to my intuition and left and went somewhere else, you know, but again, I was a kid. And so like, whatever my parents were told and it's like, Oh, she's fine. And like, I'm like, okay, like I'm going about my daily, like, you know, teenage routine now, you know? So I think though, like deep down, I knew something was wrong. Like I pretty much self-diagnosed myself before I was diagnosed. So like, I think like listening to your body and like, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, I think a lot of things could have been done differently. So I think just taking action to get like another opinion. At that point, did you know about arthritis and like younger people or um, was that kind of new to you? You know, no, I didn't really know like this type of arthritis in younger people. Um, I didn't know about autoimmune diseases because my dad had psoriasis. So, okay. you know, I was actually more worried about getting psoriasis than arthritis. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I knew about like the autoimmune disease aspect and stuff like that. But no, I didn't really pay much attention to like what arthritis was other than like what is experienced in older age or by like a way of accidents or sports injuries but yeah thank you Effie like this is a great conversation that we had today and I really appreciate you kind of opening up and touching a bunch of different topics like kind of shedding a light on some of the work that you've done and your passion projects so everyone stay tuned for some of those passion projects and follow Effie's social media channels they're actually really great um, and you can hear a lot from many different people not only Effie on these social media platforms and So yeah, everyone like, comment, subscribe, check out Effie's channel. She has a YouTube channel. Check that out. And we'll see everyone next week on Take a Pain Check. Bye. Bye.